Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the 16mm Film Crew. I'm Cindy. And I'm Dale. You can watch us on YouTube. You can like and comment on our YouTube videos and subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can listen to us every podcasts are found at 16mm Film Crew Podcast. Leave us a rating review. And visit us on our website at www.16millimeterfilmcrew.com. So, Happy New Year. We are back. We took a little break, but we are hitting the ground running with our first film of the year, The Holdovers, directed by Alexander Payne. Set in 1970, The Holdovers follows a bad temper history teacher at a New England boarding school who is forced to chaperone a handful of students with nowhere to go on Christmas break. This movie stars Paul Giamatti, Divine Joy Randolph, and Dominic Sessa. So, Dale, tell us about your thoughts. I thought it was a beautiful movie. Like, I really did. I don't know. Something about, like, when you think, like, fall and winter, especially, I think, for me growing up as well, even though I grew up mostly in the South, I always think, like, New England, Northeast kind of thing. You know, I remember being a little kid and my mom, my, one of my aunts being like, on a college campus there as a kid in the fall. Like, whenever I think fall, I think, like, Northeast and winter and fall. And it's, like, so picturesque. But yeah, I think this movie was amazing. Um, Paul Giamatti, Paul Giamatti did a great job. Uh, Levine Joe Randolph, amazing. Um, of course, uh, the young man, um, Dominic Sessa, Dominic Sessa, did an amazing job as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought The Holdovers was a charming movie with a lot of heart. I like that it was kind of quirky and had like very quirky characters, and just like really good writing. Um. And one thing that I was thinking about when I was watching it is that it really does feel like a film that was made in the 70s, even though obviously it was made in current and present day. Um, the feel and the look to it was just very 70s. Like it looks like it could have been a film made in that time um, that was just like restored and we were just watching it again. But yeah, I really like that every character had their moment to develop, like everyone had their own arcs and you got to see those arcs explored in this. And that incorporated the politics and the social landscape of the time without it kind of uh, eclipsing the personal stories that we were watching and their eternal lives. Um, So that was, I thought it was really good. Like I really did enjoy it. Yeah. 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 Like, like you said, like, uh, the fact that it looks really set in the 1970s like i think our director alex payne he like like he said it was very easy for fine to find scenes and locations to shoot in um massachusetts area and he said specifically um capturing that aesthetic of the 1970s it was really easy because he said new england is like really slow to change like a Mm -hmm. lot of those structures and buildings are still there which i I think when you're making a movie you kind of have to be I think very intentional on what you're shooting to capture that vibe a lot. And I think sometimes directors, they say, Oh, I want to set it in this time period, but you could still see in the sets, like they can dress up as much as they want. But when this, the shots kind of go wide, you can get, you can kind of say, okay, that's not really an aesthetic or style or a dressing or fixture that really fits that um time period. It's clear in this movie based on a location, they really did not, they didn't really have to do that much changing to the location to help it fit. Yeah, I think I heard him say in an interview that he was very insistent on 
filming during winter. Like he didn't want to film and have to like add fake snow and stuff. He like he wanted it to be very authentic. And I feel like that is if you're from here or if you have family here or spend time in the Northeast, like that's how it feels. That's how it looks. And I do think that it's kind of great that it hasn't changed just because like if you want to capture a moment, it's kind of easy to do so. Like you don't have to do a whole bunch of set dressing. You know, it's just all kind of there. Yeah. Smart. <laughs> it's smart. Yeah. Oh. Um, but yeah, speaking of just how it looks, the cinematography, it was done by Eagle Bird or Brill. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It feels like a I'm not gonna assume where this person's from. <laughs> but yes, is it He's Danish, so Okay, yeah. there we go. I was like, it feels Nordic, but I didn't know where in the Nordic country it was from. Okay, but yeah. So the cinematography looks great. Um I don't know if they filmed on film or if they did that thing where like you can film on digital, but you can make it look like you're filming on film. I don't know. There's different techniques. I'm not sure. But if it was filmed on film, <laughs> it looked incredible <laughs> and it looked very naturalistic. Like, I really like that. It's not it wasn't showy, but I think that like every scene that was shot and how it was composed was very intentional. Like it was definitely telling you something about the character or like where the character was in their story. Um, one of my favorite shots is when Angus is playing piano in the school auditorium and Paul Giamatti comes in and they have that conversation. But also like when they're just outside at like an outside bookstore, I thought that was really cool. Like that shot, the shot of them in the cinema, like all of those shots were like really well done. And again, it's not like fancy cinematography but i just think the way it was composed was really well done yeah i think um his style particularly with this movie um he's he was a cinematographer house of cards uh in the bridges you don't know jack he's done a lot of a lot of work but um like it kind of does piggyback off the whole new england-esque aesthetic of winter and fall like when you look at all these scenes in this movie it looks very much like it's a picture yeah in time the framing and composition of it look very much like a picture um and that's something i think a lot of cinematographers forget like like our starting ground for a lot of this stuff is film like not is when i say film i mean photography some mm. cinematographers really do kind of do forget those how to frame shots and stuff like like you're taking a picture and i do really think um mr bird i hope i'm pronouncing your last name correctly i don't know danish i'm sorry if i'm pronouncing it wrong but I do think he was really intentioned to make every single frame feel like a portrait or photo on its own. Yeah, I agree. It all, yes, it looks very picturesque yeah. in that way. Um, but also I was thinking about when you said that, that like a lot of times people, sometimes they film on with film just because aesthetically it might look nicer. Yeah. But I really like when people film with film for like, the intentionality of like memories like this is something like it feels nostalgic or it feels like something that I remembered you know or that happened to me years ago and so that's the framing of like why you're using it it's not like an like a purely aesthetic choice like it really is like to continue the like or to really emphasize what the story is trying to say um and like bring out those themes so I think again again don't know if he did or not but if he did that 
just adds to like because it I don't know if you've like seen newsreels and stuff from that time um you kind of already know like what that aesthetic is and I think that sometimes it could just be played for nostalgia but I don't think that they really leaned into that like even when the when it came to the soundtrack um and score like you could have put in like a lot of songs that were from that time which is sometimes what people do to like really emphasize the point like this is the time period that we're setting it in but I but I like that they didn't really lean into that too much like they treated the people as if they were people like not just like figures from our history that like we may have known but like actual people that we probably do know um and I really think that that was smart of like stripping it down and not making it so like nostalgia bait but just kind of like this was just a moment in time that we're talking about yeah i think they were really intentional with the soundtrack for it i mean usually like you said they throw like oh it's during this era so every single waking moment of a picture a period piece has to have the it song from Mm -hmm. that you know that era i mean you know they have the temptations version of merry christmas um playing in the background during the party scene they had some bits of piece like that it wasn't completely dominated with songs from that era and it let the the actual um soundtrack of the composer um Mark Horton literally breathe without having to a lot like it was really s- simplistic minimal minimalist um interpretation going on and so when you weren't really jarred as much when you know scenes where the music was playing would come up it mostly relied more so on the composer's music in this project which doesn't really happen a lot in period pieces they kind of do rely heavily on the soundtrack of that era yeah, it's like constant needle drops. Yeah. Just like, yeah. Um, okay, so I really want to talk about the characters. These are some really interesting characters. So Paul Giamatti plays Paul Hunnam. Um, I think he gave a performance. The funny thing is I think that Alexander Payne wrote this for him specifically. So I think they had worked together before previously on a couple of different projects. So um, where we're friends or something like that. So, and Again, like I don't know anyone else who could have played this role. Like, it does seem like it was like handcrafted for for Paul Giamatti. I remember watching Big Fat Liar when I was like a kid, <laughs> and that's all that was playing in my head. It was like kind. It's not the same character, obviously, but just that kind of crabby old man. Like that, it was giving that, but gave it a lot more depth. Like there was a lot of depth here. It wasn't just. <laughs> it wasn't just that. Um, I'm sorry. It wasn't Alex asked Paul to be in it, but it was actually written by David Hemmingson. So different writer, but still no one else could have played that part. He was perfect in it. Um, and yeah, he plays like a crotchety old man, but from the beginning, I already knew like him and Angus were going to be eventually. Yeah. Yeah. You know, cause we kind of seen that dynamic before in other stuff. So it's not like, I don't think they're trying to like bait you with something that you've never seen before, but I think that how they're exploring these different things of like, that's personal, but also like pretty general and what's happening in society at that time. I think that that makes a lot more sense of like how the relationship goes. Cause it's not like an automatic, like, okay, I didn't like you in the beginning, but halfway through, like we're besties. Like it's not that. Um, It's a very gradual build. And even towards the end, it's still not like, they're not like skipping off, you know, into the sunset together. It's, it's still like a little bit of a distance. 
between the two, but like a respect and appreciation for the other person, which is great. Like they actually really do great things for each other that you might not have expected at the beginning. So I just really like how he was written and how like his own principles kind of change as the movie goes on. Paul, like you mentioned, Big Fat Lion. Paul Giamatti has had like one of the biggest, or not actually biggest, the longest continual career in Hollywood. I think, like we forget, like how good of an actor he is. Like he's had a really well established career as a character actor. You know, on amazing projects. I view him in kind of um, uh, what's the why do I don't get names? I don't the Hulk from. <laughs> Avengers, Ed Norton? New Hulk. Ed Norton. No, no, no. Oh, Mark Ruffalo. Mark Ruffalo. Okay. Mark Ruffalo, yeah. I view him and Mark Ruffalo in the same light because they have amazing careers on smaller projects playing really wonderful uh, character actors. And as this is coming out, you know, Mark Ruffalo is getting praised for his role in um, uh, Pretty Things. But, like, people forget that this man is an amazing actor and his performance. And, like, I, I loved his role in this because I see, like, I thought he would, at, at some point, him and any of the kids would have got along. Mm. Anyway, like watching this movie was is a perfect example of me of how really mentorship kind of works in a way. It's mm. not something like you say, "Oh, that kid needs help. Let me go help." Him. No, you got to kind of ease into it. And I look back on like, I want to say I was a perfect kid growing up, like very much causing trouble. And I look back at all the teachers I had who I really vibed with, and it was kind of this relationship. They just saw one thing in me, and they didn't let go. They drove me like time at Oakwood, even as an adult, like Cheddar always got on my case i remember middle school had a black uh teacher one of my few black teachers growing up as a kid language arts or english mr Lindsay, same same aspect and those are always the teachers you kind of remember in the type of character that paul giamani played in this movie yeah i think it really drove home like the importance of teachers and how valuable they are and how they're not just yeah. educators they're also parental figures caregivers you know social workers like they they have to do a lot like (laughs) they have so much responsibility which is why one they need to be paid more so if the government is listening they're not but (laughs) they need to be paid more um but also not everyone can do that job like i know like there have been some great teachers but there have been some i've had some bad teachers (laughs) Uh, but the teachers who have really defined me, some of them, we were, it wasn't like an automatic connection. Like we didn't hit it yeah. off immediately. Um, but as the year went on, or if in, set, in a setting like high school, when you have some, like when you're seeing the same teachers over and over and sometimes you have them in the same classes, um, we became really close. So it's like, and I really needed those mentorships and that guidance when I was that age. So it's like, it's a very valuable thing. And I think they really highlight that in this movie, like just how important having someone else who isn't a parental figure in your life actually look out for you. Because in this character, Angus's parents are like not really in his life. They don't really care about him. Um, Not his biological dad, but like the stepdad and his mom. Yeah they they leave him at the school like that's the reason why he's there over christmas break like they don't (laughs) they don't want to see this child and that hurts like even if like you're smart or you seem like you have everything together like not having your parents there is like at that age is so 
terrible. Like it has such an effect on you. So even though they had an adversarial relationship in the beginning, I feel like what they end up being for each other, not only them, but um, Mary played by divine that was their little family and i was and i was living for it i was living for the the makeshift family a found a found family kind of picture yeah you have like a crotchety old man who's kind of alone you have a boy whose parents abandoned and you have a woman who is a widower and has lost her son and they're all like different levels of mourning Mm. and i think paul giamatti's character does a real good way of masking it he's constantly drinking or reading in order and he doesn't really want to form like bonds like with the waitress and the um and the, the lady who works at school like mm-hmm. he doesn't want to really form a, um emotional bonds with them even though they both kind of like each other you know she's missing something and he's abandoned so they were all needing somebody and i i do like that movie kind of like for some reason in the holiday season everybody kind of feels that the most yes you know that's why yeah. like you people like the most common depression everybody sees in depression because you really do feel it a lot during the holidays there's something about the holidays like even if you don't believe in santa claus you're not really christian you don't think jesus all that kind of stuff there's something about the holidays where something's in the air where you feel joyful and where you don't have that around you you just feel so like so sad so yeah and even when you do sometimes, you can still feel really lonely. Like, it's yeah. such a weird time where everyone is supposed to be celebrating. But that's when, for some reason, you feel, like, <laughs> at your lowest. So I honestly feel like this movie came out at the perfect time. Like, right, it was, perfect time, yeah. like, perfect timing. Because it's like, yes, this is, even if you're not experiencing that, um, you know, you still have your family around doing stuff. But, like, you're feeling that internally. Like, this is such a great thing to connect with and i felt like really connected to it um especially in the portion where angus goes to visit his dad who's in the mental institution um that is really hard and he was so excited like i mean he wasn't he like kind of didn't want to go but also really did want to go and and then his expectations were kind of dashed because it's not what he thought was going to happen and oh that was just so heartbreaking like for all the levity that's in this movie it is really heartwarming like there's a lot of heartwarming and heart-wrenching moments of it like mary's character has just lost her son in vietnam and the fact that like if angus doesn't do well in school like he will get sent to military camp and then go to vietnam and we all know the history of that how completely pointless that entire war was and how many people died in that it's like that's why i like how they were kind of bring home like what is at stake like the stakes felt high for the characters even though we were looking at like individual people in like a really fancy new england boarding school like these people are going through real struggles (laughs) like it's not and then how i really like that defines character of mary is very open-hearted to like angus and to paul but i feel like there is a moment where she kind of cuts herself off when that other, I think the janitor is trying to like get yeah, some yeah, game on her. Yeah. And she's like, Mm-mm, not the time. Um, <laughs> but also <laughs> how she finds healing because her sister is pregnant and she's going to have a baby. And so even though she lost someone, she's going to gain something in her life, like a new member of her family. And 
you know, she gives her son's baby clothes to her sister. Like, it was just such a beautiful, like, full circle. Like, I think that's what this movie was about, too. It was, like, finding healing through found family. Like, it was great. (laughs) I don't know how many times I say that. It was great. It's it's a a real part. It is, like, perfect for this time of year. Or the last time of year. It's 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 the movie embodies all the things of what you want from a holiday movie. Not like when I say a good holiday movie, I don't mean like Hallmark, which is just cheesy uh, for no reason. Like this movie is like really emotional, really sentimental. Like it's it fluctuates perfectly. It's not doesn't fit the musical, doesn't fit the comedy. It like is really real. Like mm-hmm. it's it's not stuck in one way or another. It just flows perfectly naturally. All the characters play off each other, and they're written so well. They play, the actors play off each other so well. You know, um, especially um Dominic. This being his mm-hmm. first role, mm-hmm. like the only reason he got the role is because they held a casting call at the school at Deerfield Academy, which was one of the shooting locations of the movie. And he was one of the, oh. and all he was doing before at the school was like theater. And acting in plays and stuff like that, and he was, um, I think they said he was one of the twelve students who auditioned for the role, and he got picked. You know, for this being his first like Hollywood role, like you mostly see people go to film school, they go to Juilliard, Yale, they do all this stuff, acting. No, I just graduated high school, you know, last year, and now this is my, you know, not even graduate. He was still a student, you know, that's two thousand one, so. It's yeah, it's a it's amazing if, if for him to perform the way he did, like against like Paul Giamatti, like I said before, he's like a titan in the industry, like an amazing job. I can't imagine, you know, doing that. You know, I'd probably fangirl. You know, yeah, and I guess that's just like having the gift. Like some people yeah. just have it. Like it is really remarkable that this is his first role. Like because he was. He seems like a person who's kind of just been acting for a while. And like, I can imagine him like just being in theater and we just discovered him now. But like, he was still in school when he got cast for this. So that is, that is quite remarkable. Really holds his own as a co-lead to Paul Giamatti in this. He was so good because he has this like, almost like, I don't care attitude. I'm, you know I'm too smart, like, to, like, fall into your traps, like, a, maybe a, um, a superiority complex a little bit, like, he seems like that, but you know, at the core of him, like, this is a person who is struggling, and the fact that he connects with people, but it's almost, it's never, like, the the response is never too much, it's never, like, big hugs or big gestures, there's scene where Paul Giamatti goes in to speak to his parents at the end and he's just sitting with Mary and he hold, and I, she holds his hand and stuff. Like, that was really all that you need to know to understand that, like, these two people are connected. Like, this, like, the couple of weeks that we spent over winter break has resulted in us being this close. Um, and even at the end, they give each other, Paul gives um, Angus a hug when he's about to leave. You know, he just lost his job for this kid. Um, but they have that hug and then they have that little moment of like, well, you know, you can, you can stay, I can skip fifth period and we can just like go to the diner or whatever. And it's, 
it's never too much where it's unbelievable. It's just enough where you're like, yeah, I get it. These two people have gone through some experiences and they are like bonded from those experiences. It was just so well acted. Like, yeah. I don't know. How do we feel about Mary's Boston accent? Defines the Boston accent. How do we feel about that? I'm I'm not, you know, my you know, my I don't have any wheelhouse of knowledge or Boston accents. Only thing I know is I in at college, me and my friends would shit on Boston ac- accents all the time. Like, go pop a car. I'm going to Harvard, like we would do the overtop family guy, Rhode Island, Boston kind of accent. So I can't <laughs> really gauge it. Um I don't think um accents sometimes are necessary in certain films. Um so I don't I think Paul kind of tried to make it work. I know Dominic because he's from Massachusetts, it came out kind mm-hmm. of naturally. Actually. Um, I don't think La Divine, uh, she had the same kind of issue with Paul. Like, she just didn't want to force her to maintain natural. Um, but her performance as well, like, their, like, th- their expressions on her face when, like, the scene where she's sitting down and she's listening to Sam Cooke at the party, mm. and just the emotional expression, like, that level of emoting, and not surprised by it at all like she's had a long career like in film and a bunch of other tv roles and she's done just like paul as well like she has like a theater background doing Mm -hmm. stuff on like broadway and stuff like that i do think even though as much we talk about broadway kind of playing to the deceits to the cheap seats and over emoting there's they're able i don't know when they switch and get like these actual like film roles like mm. they just they're able to change their expressions to where it's not overdone like some actors who just do film cannot emote properly mm. you know which is weird but she was able to just just to i love those like micro expressions and people change like same thing with dominic when they're at the um the hospital and his eyes are welling and he's talking about his father and all that stuff and like i love when actors are able to sell what the character is embodying in that moment just on their their face yeah i wasn't in love with the boston accent that she did but it didn't kind of i don't know it didn't matter that much like (laughs) it didn't like disrupt my enjoyment of her performance or my viewing experience i just noticed it i was just like okay yeah she's doing a boston accent (laughs) Yeah, this is one of those pictures of the accents kind of take secondary to everything. <laughs> yeah. Um. So those are my thoughts on that. But yeah, at first when I watched it, I guess I don't know if I felt like the weight of it. It's not actually until a few weeks later after watching it where I'm like, nah, that was really good. Because the conversation around the film was so hyped. Like, I don't know. Like, if you're on, like, film tube or film talk or film Twitter, like you are hearing certain conversations about certain movies, right? And from when this dropped at TIFF, that's all I heard. All I heard was this film being the one of the best films of the year. So when I went to go see it, I guess my expectations were, maybe I was a little bit skeptical. I was like, okay, everyone's saying that this is so hype, like good, like the hype is a lot. Is it actually that good? And so when I watched it, I was like, yeah, this is good. I don't know if this is like the best film of the year, but it was a really good film. But I think as I'm reflecting on it, it is really good. Like the hype isn't 
mischaracterized. Like it, there is a reason why people are talking about this film in the way that they are. And especially the performances too. So like, I get it. I get it. I'm not going to be a hater. I definitely get it. Yeah. I think, I think for me, when it got selected for Busan in the icon category, cause let's be honest, like I do, like, I think Korean cinema captures character essence in their stories a lot more than American films. And it was the only, like, they've had, like, the Icon had, Icon category had a lot of international films from Germany, like, a lot of European Mm -hmm. pictures that kind of delve on character stories as well. And it was the only American, it was the only American film there. So the fact that Busan realized their selection committee for projects realized, oh, how good this movie was, as far as it being character-driven and stuff like that, I was like, okay, yeah, this, this movie is, yeah. So this movie is it. And it is it because last night was the Golden Globes. Paul won a Golden Globe. Divine won a Golden Globe. Um, I know Dominic, he he was nominated for this award show, but for I think he's nominated for the Critics Choice Awards. So yeah. everyone's getting recognized. And like the proof is in the pudding, if you will. Um <laughs> Because people are really connecting to the the story and these performances, like and it's and the industry is recognizing it, which is really good um, and important. I think sometimes because this isn't, I wouldn't think that this would be like an Oscar bait type of movie. Like to me, that's not what this movie reads. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that it is doing this well is just like a testament to hopefully how things are shifting and like as people, more people are getting inducted into the academy into the hollywood foreign press association like more people are having a more diverse group of people we're getting to see some of these films that may have been kind of like on the mar- the marginal kind of outliers yeah get centered and also like show up like actually win stuff which is yeah i think we're heading in the right direction yeah it, i think this movie marks a transit hollywood's kind of in a bit of a transitional period uh with moving out of the whole superhero stuff and moving back to character driven pictures in a way um yeah like you said if i don't like any other year this movie probably would have probably been kind of swept under the rug in mm-hmm. a way it wouldn't have mm-hmm. the should have mm-hmm. but i'm so i'm so glad it does maybe you know yeah like i said maybe this is hollywood you know upward trend back like character driven pictures which i miss a lot i i, I think the industry there's room in the industry for both yes action driven your you know your musicals your comedies and still have very well um made well acted well shot um character driven movies yep so i definitely think everyone should go see it if you haven't already it's streaming on peacock mm-hmm. if you want to do that i think you should <laughs> great so yes one like cindy mentioned earlier we're another year older another year wiser some multiple years wiser than others at the moment um (laughs) but we we were gone for a long time you know so i'm just gonna give the top 10 for the past for last year um Mm. in the box office um of course at number 10 we had sound of freedom which 
kind of up in the air on the validity of his box office earnings <laughs> because due to due to a lot of people renting out theaters or buying multiple tickets and not really seeing the project. So that's kind of a touchy subject. But that movie came in number 10. Um, John Wick Chapter 4 came in at 9. Um, Ant-Man and the Wasp came in at 8. Um, Avatar The Way of Water um, for last year came in at number 7. Little Mermaid at 6. Oppenheimer at uh, 5 for last year. Guardians of the Galaxy at 4. Spider-Man Across the Universe came in at 3. The Super Mario Brothers movie came in at 2. And Barbie came in at number 1. So that was the domestic uh, top 10 in box offices of last year. Kind of surprised Oppenheimer came in 10th, you know, with them and Barbie. I, I really thought they'd be 1 and 2 as far as it. Um, not surprised Spider-Man Across the Universe debuted at 3. I think, honestly, those between Barbie, Super Mario, Spider-Man, and Oppenheimer, I don't think those were the big four movies of the year outside of the usual Marvel fanfare with uh, Guardians of the Galaxy and Ant-Man and the Wasp. Okay, moving on to our news. Um, a lot happened, obviously, while we were gone. <laughs> Mainly Jonathan Majors. Okay, so John- Jonathan Majors, as we know, was on trial because um, his ex-girlfriend had accused him of harassment and um, assault, right? So he had the trial. He was convicted on two things, but not on one of them. It was like a split verdict, but he was convicted on like having assaulted her. And there was, there was just a lot of discourse just around that. Then he did an interview earlier today that came out. Um, where he was asked about the trial (laughs) and he basically said that like he abused his ex-girlfriend I think her name was Grace Jabari he abused her heart but not her body and that he felt like he shouldn't have stayed in a relationship even when he knew it was unhealthy and he had a whole bunch of mental health issues around his whole life but that this had brought it back up. And he reiterated his innocence and said that he absolutely thinks that he'll be working again. Like he doesn't think that this will derail his career at all. And then Megan Good. I don't know even where to start with this, but Dale, (laughs) tell me your thoughts. Just generally, how do you Um, feel I don't know. My opinion on the case is weird. Um, because I think first off, New York has a policy of whenever domestic disputes happen, they usually arrest the male in most situations. Um, that's to say that domestic abuses both women and men can abuse each other. I think this case kind of is a bit, a bit like um, Amber Heard and Robert not not Robert Jr. but um Johnny Depp in a way, where I think they're both were kind of being physical with each other in that moment a situation. Um, I do think a lot of actors don't listen to the PR people anymore. Um, because if I was Jonathan Majors, uh, a lawyer, I not lawyer or PR management company, which he kind of did lose due to this. Um, I kind of would have taken like a good three months or so to just let stuff die down a bit, you know, to do a little bit of character, you know, 
rehabilitation, rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. if you will, and not give this interview the way it did. Um, uh, I think um, the Nicole Brer, who's a social so uh, sociologist who deals mm-hmm. with this kind of stuff, um, she kind of said that um, the experience of this um interview is kind of weird because it seems like everybody is trying to pick piggyback off of Gail Kim and her interview R. Kelly, hunting for those gotcha moments, and mm-hmm. she's like a lot of these TV um interviewers do not have the training necessarily to try to outsmart to get get a gotcha moment to get sound clips mm-hmm. um like the the main sound clip that's being shared on twitter is him calling uh making good a coretta which is really weird considering that whole thing when he first was popping up some women were calling him civil rights fine and i think that just went right to his head a little bit too much um but yeah, it's not a good look. I hope he takes whatever time he probably needs to, you know, do whatever mental issues. I mean, I can only speak on the mental issues I have. I don't know. And it's not the first documented thing. When it's first brought up, there are people who work on other films with him as far as crew and PAs kind of coming forward with issues of him on set. But I do think in those kind of senses, it's typical actor ego on set in a way. But We'll see. I just hope if the abuse and stuff is true, he gets the help, whatever help he needs. So, yeah. Hey. I cannot. I. Yeah, it's not a. Yeah. I have. <laughs> okay. First of all, I feel like how, how this was handled before we even got to court was mm-hmm. terrible. We covered that. We talked about this. Um, the evidence was out there and how his lawyers were trying to twist it. It just made him look more guilty. And then the verdict came out. <laughs> and I think one of the most embarrassing things for me as a black woman was to see Megan Good up there every single day holding this man's hand. And it's like, girl, you were just in a relationship earlier this year. Like, there's no way that you could be this close with this dude like loved up going to the courthouse with him like and then she was sitting down with him in the interview (laughs) like they panned to her and she was sitting right there and it's just like Megan Good come on stand up like this is incredibly embarrassing like I don't I feel like defending abusers at all is um a bad look to say the least but (laughs) on top of that like for you to just be like trying to be a wifey like pick me type of situation it's just really weird because it's like you're making good like you are an established actress like we have seen your work throughout the years like you have too much going for you to be doing this like this is crazy to me I don't I don't under I can't I can't understand it like I cannot comprehend like what's going through her mind there um it's just embarrassing to look at and then Jonathan Majors in this interview, I feel like his, I feel like the interviewer, I forgot what her name is. I think it's like Kristen Davis or something like that. That might not be her name, but <laughs> I've been seeing her on the news. She was not one really challenging anything that he was saying, which is weird because that's your job. <laughs> like if you're going to do an interview like this, you need to 
challenge some things. You have to push back on some of the things that he's saying. She gave him a lot of like softball questions, really let him just talk from his point of view of like what happened. And so that's not good journalism to me. Like if we're comparing like the Amber Heard, Johnny Depp situation to this, which I don't really think it's comparable because I just think it's very different in terms of like, how the media received it yeah. and maybe that's just because Amber Heard's a woman and Jonathan Majors is a man I don't know but like yeah. even the woman who interviewed her Amber Heard after the trial Savannah Gunthery she pushed back on her a lot like she yeah. gave facts and was like you said this but then this happened on this day like had receipts like you know like actually like <laughs> did her work did did the research did the homework and, you know, didn't kind of throw her these softball questions and let her run the interview. That's not what happened. And I feel like if you're going to do an interview like this and you need to also do this, like you also, you need to, you know, ask the tough questions. And I feel like a lot of the conversation, especially in the black community has been a lot of people defending on the majors and saying mm-hmm. that, one trying to make it like a race thing like he's only being accused of all this stuff because he's black and so everything that's happening is because he's black and black people in america have historically been you know have not fared well in the criminal justice system and it's like oh crap sorry (laughs) it's um that is true I, I feel like they're doing this. They did the same thing with OJ where it's like, you're yeah. because you know, it's a black man and a white woman that it has to be made all about race. And I feel like, the, yes, I'm absolutely sure that race has a part to play in this, but you have to hold two things together as like a true thing. Like you can't just be like, well, it's about race and completely ignore all the other evidence. Like you can't just do that. Like you have to look at all of the factors at play yeah. here. And I feel like people don't want to do that because Jonathan Majors is a great actor and he was like a rising star. His career seemed like it was going to be long and great. It's like, yes, we can be disappointed that things didn't work out with Jonathan Majors. Like he was a promising person and most of us were were rooting for him. But I also feel like now that we know, not only with this incident, but also the other incidents with people who went to school with him and people who had worked with him, that this is not just an isolated thing like he this is his personality so we have to take that into account like and i feel like he really made the interview about how like he has been through so much and that this situation just exasperated like all of the things that he's gone through in the past and i don't doubt that Mm -hmm. he has mental health issues i don't doubt any of those things but I also feel like that's not an excuse for you doing what you did to this woman or to any of the other people Anybody. that were offended or hurt by your actions or words. So again, see, if, a, if we had a real journalist doing this interview, we would have gotten that conversation going, would have gotten that discourse, but we got what we got, which is just Jonathan Majors feeling completely victimized and not taking any accountability for what happened here. Um, I mean, not that he was ever going to, obviously he completely remained, he said that he was innocent throughout the entire thing. So he was never going to be like, you know what? I messed up. That was never going to happen. But I just find the whole thing really gross. I think it's, I don't like, I mean, I guess everyone needs, deserves to have their 
side out there, but I honestly don't love the platforming of him just like playing not I'm not saying that he hasn't been a victim to other things, but I think in this situation playing the victim. I'm just not I'm not into that. And Megan Good, girl, please leave. <laughs> Those are my they're like like three weird things going on with this like you mentioned the racial stuff like people were bringing up robert downey jr and we were like all robert downey jr was do drugs he didn't really hurt anybody and that was he did his time he got his he did his jail time got clean and then he did iron man i can Mm -hmm. understand now if you want to say ezra miller because uh they were doing a lot of crazy stuff with no with with no, you know, consequences, you know, yeah, recourse or consequences. Mm-hmm. So you can you can compare it to the Ezra Miller situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other two things about it, um, it's it's obvious. Like even though he's fired from Marvel, this is Disney's kind of attempt with GMA Good Morning America, which is an ABC product, which is owned by Disney, who owns Marvel, is their way of we're releasing it from his project. We're gonna do the interview with him. We want to see how public opinion reacts to this to see if we can probably bring him in slowly back into another project because he's also in the last season of Loki. We still want to keep those numbers up, you know, Ant-Man, the Wasp, streaming, all that stuff, you know, so they still want to try and work their way in it. And the other person I feel does not look good in this situation at all, like you said, is Megan Good. And this is like the second time for Megan Good because... You know, we had the passing of Jim Brown, who's an NFL legend, civil rights activist, but he himself has has a history of abuse toward women. Mm. And Megan Good was his goddaughter, and she mentioned on on his death about how she was a mentor figure for her, stuff like that. Like, and it's not a good look for her, like so too close, the close association with two abusers. Mm. It's not a good look for her. And I kind of do think people mask the um, the association with abusers and people do stuff like this as, oh, they're God-fearing, they're Christian. Like he, this whole time in this interview, John Majors brings up praying and stuff like that. And I do feel like people try to mask their wrongdoing and say, oh, I'm a work in progress or I pray to God and stuff like that. Which So this is not a good look for her either. So Yeah, it's not. It's yeah. It's... And that's probably the point that made, not made me the most, but really gave me like fireballs of anger and ick is when she asked him about if he thinks that he was going to work again. And he was like, yes, it was, it was almost like, it's almost like he's living in a reality where it's like none of this stuff actually happened. And somehow like everything was just done to him. And so of course I'm going to work again. Like, yes. And the way he was presenting himself, you know, very soft-spoken and tearful, it's just like, one, I don't know if people would ever, are going to believe it because he's an actor and a good one, though. It's like, are you even being real or is this a performance? So that you have against you in the first, like, just off the bat. And then it's like, this, the lack of, like, introspection or anything to not even think that your career is at risk, even though you have been fired from these big projects. And Disney released a statement that they were firing him immediately, like two hours after the the verdict came down. (laughs) They were like, he's gone. Like they were waiting for the confirmation of the trial to kick him out. And they're already making different plans to replace him, either replacing him with a different actor 
or just completely sweep that Kang story out of out of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and start with somebody else. Like, yeah. So I just feel like he doesn't need the Marvel stuff because he was doing stuff before the Marvel stuff. But I'm just saying, like, the fact that he doesn't even think that his career is in jeopardy, even though all of these things have happened, is really weird. Because it's like, steps have already been taken to not have you work. Now, it could be possible that he can come back because that has happened multiple times. Um, But I don't know. I don't know how generous studio execs are to Black people in general, especially Mm -hmm. Black people who mess up. So... The ego of an actor is a dangerous one because look at Nate Parker. Almost the kind of same situation in his career. Mm -hmm. Has yet to recover. He's trying to do his own projects and pictures and they're all ass. You know, sorry, excuse my language for saying that, but yeah. So I don't, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So, of course, we mentioned all uh, the Golden Globes wins from uh, the characters on the actors on the holdovers of Paul Giamatti and um, uh, Divine. Their two wins, but of course, yeah, the Golden Globes tonight was the other night. A lot of stuff happened. Um, yeah. Joe K like bombed the whole or uh Joe Coy I mispronounced your name. He's a comedian. Bombed the just horrible. Mm-hmm. I, I witnessed two like bombs last night. The Dolphins losing in Joe K's <laughs> Golden Globes um hosting. You know, yeah, yeah. The Golden Globes. I feel like the Golden Globes are like the VMAs of movies. You know, like an award show that is just found, like it's planted on drama. Like what yeah. what you're actually here for is mess. I feel like that's what the Golden Globes has turned into. And I think that that's a place that they like to be because, I don't know, they're kind of a joke. I feel like most people don't look at the Golden Globes with the respect that they look at the Oscars or even something like the SAG Awards or the BAFTAs. Like, Golden Globes is like the messy cousin that you see every Thanksgiving. Like that's, that's the energy that the Golden Globes always gives. So like, of course that night was just going to be an absolute mess. He did a terrible job apparently on his monologue. First of all, I don't even know who this person is. So that's, I was like, who is hosting? What? Um, He made fun of Taylor Swift. The Swifties came for his neck immediately and he had to respond immediately to that um there was drama between selena gomez and kylie jenner timothy and kylie jenner were like kissing during the golden globes i was like girl y'all are just here for some drama the only thing i cared about was like how does what who okay i was thinking about like in terms of the winners what does that mean for the Oscars? Like, does this set the stage for what we're going to see then? Because that's usually, that's the only reason why I pay attention to this. That and for the red carpet. And honestly, nobody really gave during that, except except for Greta Lee from Past Lives, absolutely bodied. Mm-hmm. Great oh, drag. That bob was dangerous. That bob and the, dr- oh, Ooh, what? Mm. I am a Greta Lee stan. I'm sorry, like from the morning show to this, like Greta Lee is my girl. Like I, I'm rooting for her always. Um, but I feel like who won was a good indicator for like what we'll probably see going into these next award shows. So, and I, I like that most of the people had, we already had talked about 
whom we thought were going to win for some of these things actually ended up doing so. Yeah. So it's interesting to see what will happen kind of going into, because now there aren't, the categories are going to be shrunk, obviously, for the Oscars. Mm-hmm. So we have like Emma Stone and Lily Gladstone probably going to be two front runners. We got uh, Killian Murphy and... Oh, who was the other person who won for Best Leading? Paul Giamatti. Paul Giamatti. Those will yeah. go kind of head-to-head. Robert um, Downey Jr. Will he... I'm kind of rooting for Charles Milton. I, it's okay if it's not him, but like... <laughs> Robert, it's looking like it's going to be Robert's year. I don't know. But, um, And then Best Picture went to Oppenheimer. So, and Chris Nolan won for Best Director. And I think that that's interesting because if he actually yeah. ends up winning, that'll be his first win. Yeah. So, and Barbie didn't get anything except for Best Box Office because obviously it made the most money. Yeah. So... I, I'm like okay. I'm I'm invested this year. I'm invested to see what's gonna happen. Yeah, I, I'm. It's a good litmus test of what's gonna work for like between this. Um, I'm not gonna say the Emmys. This and the SAG. Yeah. Because a lot of actors and actresses, it's more contemporaries voting on people for SAG. Right. Right. And a lot those are usually the same people who have votes for the Oscars. Mm-hmm. So that's I think the Golden Globe is more so press. Mm. I think. So it's a good so the the aggregate of those two kind of does give you a litmus test going forward for the Oscars. Um but yeah like like I said so much drama behind the Golden Globes. <laughs> like I think after you know after Drug Carmichael last year told the actors to shut the fuck up. <laughs> like I loved it. Talking, like the like Golden Globes gives off like messy high school prom church banquet vibes. <laughs> I don't wanna I don't wanna be there, but I'm gonna be there and it's it's just a mess. Um you had the Hollywood reporter after AO won for her role on the bear. Hollywood reporter tweeted out, Oh, Taylor Swift nods in agreement. Like they tweeted her talking about her award and the camera cut to Taylor. And the Hollywood Reporter mentions Taylor Swift's response no. to AO. And they don't even mention AO's name in that situation. No. And, talking, and it's AO talking about her role, uh, her win for the bear. And then the whole time on the red carpet, they're also bugging um AO about um about his his physique due to him being a new Calvin Klein model as well. Oh, and Jeremy. Like, yeah, Jeremy. And they're like mm-hmm. She's like, this is kind of inappropriate. He is my coworker. You know, I, I kind of got to work with him for a couple months next year. And y'all showing me topless <laughs> pictures of it. Like, yes, he just did the, the Iron Claw and he's gotten shape for that. But y'all gotta got to ask me his opinion on if it's his physique every moment y'all get. That's like, yeah. Golden Globes. Oh, I didn't know it dissolved that badly. Oh, my God. That's what I said. This is the VMAs of film. Like, this is like Nicki Minaj going on stage saying Miley was good. Like, that's what this, that's the energy that this is giving. It's crazy. (laughs) But that's what I, as soon as I saw the nomination list that came out last year, I was like, I know exactly what this is about. Like, it was, it's just so obvious at this point. Like, y'all are just here trying to be messy queens and for the ratings. And I mean, people were people were invested. So I guess like I don't know what the ratings is like how much ratings it got this year, but 
they knew they just they just wanted drama and honestly like (laughs) i mean i guess there's a place for it um i don't like it being mixed in with like we're like these are serious movies that we're talking about and serious shows i don't i don't love that we're mixing those two things together but i i don't know whatever (laughs) yeah whatever okay it was a a mess Mm -hmm. (laughs) so at the golden globes actually oprah responded to the whole color purple drama um Mm -hmm. which we didn't know about the color purple drama there was Taraji P. Henson had talked about how actresses were not getting, Black actresses specifically, were not being paid what they were due, especially her. And um, then there was a photo call at the Empire State Building, and it seemed like Oprah was like trying to remove herself from ever standing next to Taraji throughout the entire photo call. And so people were like, Taraji and Oprah got beef. Mm. And that's been going on for a few weeks now. So, um, Oprah finally responded and said that she doesn't have issues with anyone. Like her and Taraji are good. She tries to advocate for everybody on set because she was a producer on The Color Purple as well. And she said she obviously doesn't set the budget um, for it, but that she tries to advocate for everyone. That there's no drama. Uh, Yeah. Um, not I think Taraji spoke out about the fact that um the issue of having the actors drive around because if movie saw in Savannah, get in Savannah, nine times out of ten, you're flying into Hartsville, driving about an hour and a half or two hours to Savannah. And she was talking about how the idea of having the actors have to um drive in the city without having chauffeurs and stuff like that she thought that was weird and they had to rent their own cars mm. and she was complaining about that i think uh, daniel brooks also made a comment as far as issues with the trailers and stuff like that they had um so yeah and it's it's a real uh interesting 180 um if you've been to our website and you've read the interview between me and my sister talking about color purple like the the facade that was there for all their cast you know get-togethers it's really different when you've got everybody by themselves mentioning what it was really like behind the scenes on this on the shoot for the picture so i didn't there were so many problems i was like geez but because it seems like from what i saw everyone seemed like really enthusiastic about (laughs) making this Mm -hmm. movie but apparently I mean, you things- you can be enthusiastic and there's still issues with the project because it mm-hmm. could be a project you believe with believe in so much and you still have problems um i'm kind of not surprised to a degree oprah i think oprah's comment on the budget is kind of passing blame passing blame a bit um because if i remember correctly this is oprah Ambien and Quincy Jones are the production companies, mm-hmm. and Warner Brothers is involved a bit with um with it. Even though or, d- distribution doesn't really help with the budget, but they do help some. And I do think part of the issues with the budget might be on the Warner Brothers side because we've seen the issues with Warner Brothers. They're cutting left and right. I think for this project, they wanted to make the budget as minimal as project so they get the biggest return on investment with it as well. So that could also be an issue. Um with this project as well yeah i don't think the entire blame on budget goes should go to oprah even though she is 
a producer on it. And some people get producer roles, executive producer roles, just because of who they are, you know, this in some true. projects. So, yeah. Yeah, I guess I just don't trust Oprah. <laughs> that goes from a whole litany of things that she has done in the past that just is like, you're good at your job, but I would never want to be in uh, com- in community with you. That's that's the thing. It's like Oprah's just kind of, <laughs> she's done some really terrible things. Like, you've done some iconic things, but, you know, whatever. I just... I don't know. She's not perfect. Not, yeah. And I, and it's, but she, and it's bad. She's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. It's bad because it's like, I think there are certain black people who, when they get a certain level of money and um, recognition, that that can kind of be their basis where it's like capitalism kind of takes over the, the other parts of themselves that are important. Um, Steve Harvey said the same thing. You know, we Steve Harvey, Cat Williams had issue. He said the same thing with um, Monique when Monique was talking about how nobody, nobody in the black comedy space kind of backed her up with Netflix stuff. Mm. And Steve Harvey's response said, "Why would I kind of help you if if I want to up up the community? I got to make sure I got this money. I got to make sure I, I agree with them." So, yeah, there's a. There's there's stuff there's stuff um but okay according to Oprah there's no drama I'll we'll see how Taraji feels about that but <laughs> um anyways let's talk about what we watched over the break I'm so excited to hear everything that you watched tell me all of it um dang it is a long list and I I I we watched uh the master um I rewatched mm-hmm. of course Bradley Cooper Maestro. Rewatching a lot of older stuff. Um well the two ones that are stand out for me were um Maestro and um The Master. Um but yeah. I'm kinda working my way through a, a long litany of projects. Like uh I forgot the name of the movie, but it stars um Burning with Steve Yoon. Mm-hmm. I, re- I rewatched that as well. I'm watching Daisy Ridley's movie that came out a couple months ago as well. See, so I have a, a lot of projects I'm catching up on. Yeah. And Burning, oh, Burning was it's so good. Like, ugh. I, should, yeah, I wish I watched it when it came out. Yeah. Yeah. I see. Yeah, Burning is so good. Yeah. <laughs> um, I watched a couple of things. Um, I watched Beyonce's Renaissance tour, her film, the tour film. Mm-hmm. It was phenomenal. I went with my mom. Everybody in the theater was singing and having a great time. It was amazing. Like, actually, I've seen... This was actually an amazing year for film. I have to say, like, the films that came out in 2023, a lot of them were bangers. Um, for me, this is kind of my my favorite film. Not not because there aren't like better films, and I can't really classify it in the same category as the other ones, just because this is a concert film. It's not the same thing. But like, mm-hmm. I was emotional. I was invested. The editing was flawless. The sound design, just like how Beyonce is like a filmmaker, kind of like when it says a film by Beyonce, that's kind of what it means. Like just because a her create creating this 
Renaissance tour, like her vision for it, how she's involved in every single aspect of it. She is like a director in that sense of like putting everything together. And it's it was a spectacular show. She is the best performer on this planet. <laughs> you can't debate that. I'm sorry. If you have different feelings, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, <laughs> like she's it. There is no one doing what she's doing at the level that she's doing it. There's absolutely, there's no one else who's doing it, who can even rise to that. It's completely, it's her. <laughs> it's her. Yeah. Um, and, and being a Beyonce fan from Destiny's Child and like watching her early tours when she first went solo and stuff, like watching her touring films, it's just been like, it's been great to just see how comfortable she is now kind of just doing her thing but also how she really understands the medium that she's working in and that's what I was saying to my mom and to my friend is that like she knows what audiences want to see so she knows how to cater things to really captivate not only the audience that she's performing in front of but now that she's making the film she knows how to create a film that audience will want to see and want to enjoy like, and I think that that's just one being really intelligent Two, having really good people on your creative team to kind of make that happen. Um, but just, yeah. And three, just like, I don't know, <laughs> just being Beyonce. Like, I don't know. It's just a special, like, you don't really get people like her anymore. I feel like that level of stardom and stardust, it's, it's a dying breed (laughs) so excellent film highly recommend everyone see it i hope it comes on streaming so everyone can see it because it's just it's great um and then i watched captain called birdie which is a movie by lena dunham and i remember hearing about this film a few years ago when did it come out in 2020 it came out in 2022 i think but I didn't watch it. It was with um, Bella Ramsey, who was in The Last of Us in, in Game of Thrones. Um, it was really good. Yeah, yeah, it's like a mid-century. It's, I think it's based on a book, but it's like a mid-century girl who like doesn't want to get married. She's kind of a tomboy and stuff. It's. I thought it was good. I thought it was well-written. I liked the characters. I didn't watch Girls, so I don't know Lena Dunham's work like that. So this is my first entry into her stuff. But it was really good. Hey, the fact that Russell Brand was in it, which he was not in this movie at all. But other than Russell Brand, I think everything else worked. <laughs> and then I watched The Favorite, which is Yorgos Lanthimos movie. Mm-hmm. Not really in preparation for poor things. Um, I don't know how I feel about that. I know everyone is like really excited and loves the film and it's getting all the stuff. I'm just... I don't know, but I, I watched the favorite finally, Olivia Coleman, Emma, Emma Stone, uh, Rachel Weiss. Great. Actually great. I think Yorgos is really good at like, in terms of visually how he shoots things. It's so unique. Like he just does things that are so different that I really think is interesting. And this was actually one of my, might be my favorite film that he has done because it, was more cohesive than his other films have been. Not that his film, other films have been bad, but it's just very, very strange. Like Killing of a Sacred Deer, The Lobster, very strange movies. This one was a lot more like accessible in a way that I don't think his other ones have been, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to be quite frank. Like it's just a more accessible movie. 
And I love that it wasn't just like a biopic or a pic about a historical figure. It kind of just did away with like most of the facts and was just like, look how absurd this situation is. Mm-hmm. Nicholas Holt is in the movie. He's fantastic. He was my favorite part of the movie. Nicholas Holt is an amazing actor. He has always been an amazing actor. I feel like he needs to be in like other stuff. Like he's in stuff. He's in, he's in like big blockbuster stuff, but I want to see him in more of these things, like these weird, like character driven. I want to see him more in that because he is great. Like I have been watching him since he was a child and he is just phenomenal. Like he's one of our best actors. Yeah. That's it. Um, But great. I think, I think mm-hmm. the X Men movies really squandered his talent as an actor, because then you see him in stuff mm-hmm. like uh, uh, the Great, mm-hmm. and he's like his character work is amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and listen, I feel like nowadays it's like most actors have to dip their toe in the Marvel stuff. Olivia mm-hmm. Coleman did it. Rachel Weisz did it. Most of the peoples are doing it. Emma Stone wasn't in Marvel, but she was. Yeah, I mean Spider Man. So, like, you can do it. It's not going to be your best work. I feel like that's always just the case. Like, it's not going to be your best. But yeah. if you just need the check, like, take the check. But um, <laughs> but this stuff, like, everyone was great. Every cast member in that movie, phenomenal. How it was shot, phenomenal. The story, the writing, phenomenal. Like, it, it's an amazing movie. Um, I watched Maestro. Maestro. Bradley Cooper's new joint. Um, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> yeah. Mm. And then I watched Spirited Away. This is my first time watching anime. I have never watched anime before. Um, this is my first video. Ghibli. I, I know we're gonna talk about the boy and the heron. So my, I was talking to my friend who had watched it. Her experience and her sister's experience was, yeah not mm. so but i talked to her about it and she was telling me like watch spirited away first just to get yourself familiar with it and then go watch the other one so i watched spirited away it was really cute but it was a little too i don't know maybe i'm just getting old i don't know i felt like very young like that's the yes and i understand like that's the target for this film like I, I totally get it i respect it i thought the animation was great i love the voice acting i it's nothing against the filmmaking of it it's just i don't know if i'm the target for that kind of story i wasn't i was watching it like i was like okay cool this is what's happening but it wasn't didn't really captivate me so i think i think the misconception with um Ghibli pictures is is for kids. It's the same argument um that Guillermo del Toro makes about pictures of animated pictures of medium. Uh, Ghibli to me makes movies that are good for everybody. Like even though a lot of the subject matter in a way and the characters and situations is really kid friendly, there are a lot of hard hitting topics in these movies that adults themselves can really relate to once you start feeling about the layers. That's what I, that's what I love about as an adult now of Ghibli projects more than oh it looks cool this looks fun now as an adult I'm like oh okay the subtext really hits me on a different level now so. yeah 
My argument is not the same argument as Guillermo de Torres. I'm not saying that animation is just for children. That's not. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> that is not my stance. No, I don't believe I mean, yeah, that. No, I get you. Yeah. But I, I do think you probably need to find a, a Ghibli project or a movie that speaks to you the most. Like, okay. Yeah. What would you recommend? I don't know. I know for me, I'll always sing the praise of Kiki's delivery service. Like, it's the story of somebody who takes their passions and it becomes their career. And that whole burnout thing as an adult, I understand that now because I've experienced mm-hmm. that kind of thing. So I think you just have to find your own. I think you just need to, like, watch, like, a bunch of Ghibli films and you'll find the one that resonates with you. I, I think it's different because you're starting this Ghibli journey, whereas I've kind of yeah watched watched it so yeah yeah okay well we'll see how that goes (laughs) all righty then well that's all from us this week we hope that you're doing well and take care of yourselves make sure to check out all of our social media hi all the new social media people over on instagram what is up all the people over on youtube we see you hello um, so check those out. Support us if you can. And-